0: In the movie The Matrix, uh, there's a great kung fu scene where a mentor character named Morpheus is trying to help a disciple named Neo uh, how to… he's trying to teach him how to transcend his physical limitations in a fist fight. And at one point, Morpheus pushes Neo by saying, come on, stop trying to hit me and hit me. And uh, Neo responds. He rises to the occasion. He fights Morpheus into a corner, and then he throws a punch. He can obviously land, but he he stops short of hitting Morpheus out of respect for his mentor. And uh, Neo looks at Morpheus and says, I know what you're trying to do. To which Morpheus responds, I'm trying to free your mind, but I can only show you the door. You're the one who has to walk through it. This morning, we come to a new portion of Ephesians where I believe the Apostle Paul is saying to us in essence, I'm trying to free your mind, but I can only show you the door. You have to walk through it. To see what I'm talking about, please turn in your Bible to Ephesians 4 verse 17. Uh, We've come to a new unit of thought in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And before we jump into reading the text, it's good just to remember where we've come from so far. Uh, The letter to Ephesians, uh, the Ephesians that Paul writes, is a two part letter. The first three chapters are primarily doctrinal, the second three chapters are primarily practical, Uh, the first three are about God's great eternal plan of redemption, and the last three are about how that plan of redemption relates to your life in very specific, concrete, nitty-gritty ways. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1 is the hinge on which the entire letter turns, it functions as a transition and a topic sentence for the rest of the last three chapters, and it introduces the main idea of the last three chapters, and that main idea is this, that we should walk in a manner worthy of our calling as sons and daughters of God, that we should walk in a manner worthy of the gospel that we've been called to. Now in the Greek language, I want to remind you of this, the word worthy uh, communicates a couple of different pictures. Uh, the first is from the world of commerce. It has to do with balancing scales. If you can picture in your mind one of those old scales, right, with a fulcrum, and then you have the the two plates uh, on which, or the, the two containers on which you uh, have a measuring stone on the one hand and whatever product you're buying on the other, and the goal is to get the two to balance out. We're, well, our goal in walking worthy of the gospel message that we've been called to is that we want our privileges, the privileges we've received in Christ, We want to balance that out with our manner of living, with our words and actions. We we want our words and actions to balance with all the spiritual privileges we've received through Christ. The other picture behind the word worthy comes from the world of clothing. It was used by the Greeks for different colors and styles of clothing that went together, that matched. Uh, Though we've been saved through the gospel, We are all still very capable of clothing ourselves with words and actions that clash with the gospel we believe in. To walk in a worthy manner, then, is to put on the clothing of words and actions that match the privileges of our status as sons and daughters of God. Paul doesn't want the doctrines that we would say we believe in and the way we live our lives to clash. He wants them to match with our gospel calling. The first paragraph that Paul dedicated to what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling was Ephesians 4, verses 2 through 16. And the main point of that paragraph was uh, preserving the unity that the Holy Spirit has created in the church. And we just finished looking at that paragraph last week. And uh, last week we learned that the Lord Jesus gives every new Christian who comes to him a blending of spiritual gifts. To be exercised lovingly uh, for the spiritual advancement of others in the church. Uh, and as we all pitch in and lovingly exercise our gifts, and uh, as we wisely speak truth in love to one another, we all grow up together into Christ likeness. That's the previous paragraph we looked at. With that in mind, now let's read the text starting in Ephesians 4, verse 17. Paul says, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you've heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the desires of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank You for handpicking Paul to be the apostle to us Gentiles. We thank You for sending him and giving this word through him to the Ephesian church and now to us. The opening verses of this paragraph contain a horrible description of what we were all like before we belonged to You. Even those of us who were little children when we came to You, we all had this futility and moral darkness in our hearts. We would have grown up to live out futile worldviews and walk in moral darkness had You not taken hold of us. And so, please come and grant us to understand where this walk of darkness and where this futility of mine come from so that we can walk away from this kind of life into the new life You've given us and so that we can walk in a manner worthy of our gospel calling. In Your rescuing name we pray, amen. This new paragraph that Paul writes runs from verse 17 all the way down to verse 32, all the way down to the end of chapter 4, and it's composed of two sections. The first section is very brief, just verses 17, 18, and 19, and it's all about what not to do. Uh, It's a command not to continue living like we did before we came to know Christ. Uh, the second paragraph, or the second section of this paragraph, rather, runs from verse 20 down to the end of the chapter, and it instructs us positively on how to walk worthy, uh, how to walk in a way that uh, lives life well as a Christian. We're going to take a couple of weeks to look at this first section, verses 17 through 19, uh, and that's all about how to no longer walk as, if, uh, as we did when we didn't know Christ. Now, as we tackle verses 17 through 19, we need to understand this. As Christians, we are locked in a battle of ideas, and we have to engage our minds in this battle. It's no accident that when Jesus answered the question about which is the greatest commandment in the law of Moses, uh, that when He answered the question about what is the greatest commandment, one of the things He did, if you notice… He actually, by His own authority as the Son of God and as Israel's Messiah, by His own authority, He edited Moses. And He didn't shorten Moses. He didn't take away any words from Moses. Jesus was very clear that He affirmed every word that's written in the Old Testament. But what He did is He added to Moses, and He added the word mind. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's no accident because we are in a battle for the mind. Now, By teaching this today, that's what I'm going to emphasize today, winning the battle of the mind. By teaching this today, I do want to be balanced. I want to make sure I say this. I don't mean to imply that the entire Christian life is all about the mind and ideas and just thinking the right way. There are also other issues in the Christian life, like passions and desires and practical obedience and good works to perform and godly habits to create. The Christian life doesn't take place only in the life of the mind. But the other, on the other hand, we need to also say this, you can't lose the battle for the mind and be successful in the Christian life. Uh, perhaps this might be a helpful clarification. Winning the battle for your mind is necessary, but not sufficient. It's not sufficient because it's not the whole ball game. There are other issues involved in the Christian life and living a life that pleases God. But it is necessary because if you don't win the battle for the mind, if your thinking doesn't change, you're not going to have any hope of your behavior changing. Uh, One of the lessons we actually can learn from verses 17 through 19 is the way that Paul handles how we turn from living like we used to live. Uh, One of the things he does is in verses 17 and 18, he deals with our thinking first, and then in verse 19, he deals with our behavior. What's striking to me about that is that if I were writing the letter, I would have started with behavior. Behavior. You know, don't live like you lived before you knew God. Don't do this, that, and the other thing. That's how I would have written the letter. But it's instructive that Paul starts with our thinking because if we're ever going to have any hope of our behavior and our words changing, we have to start with thinking differently. Uh, in in pop culture, there, there's a pop song, free your mind and the rest will follow. Well, I think Paul's saying that here. It, maybe we wouldn't say it's guaranteed the rest will follow. Maybe it's like a uh, we're in basketball season. Maybe it's like a one-in-one free throw attempt, right? You got to make the first one to even have a chance at the second one. Uh, same, same idea. You have to free your mind if we're going to start on changing our behaviors. And Paul begins explaining why he's giving this command to no longer walk like we did before we knew God. Uh, he, he begins by talking about why he's giving this command, and I think he actually gives us three reasons to obey the command. Look again at verse seventeen. So, this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. You can translate the Greek word that starts the sentence so. Uh, You can also legitimately translate it as therefore, and you guys know this. Therefore is a connecting word to what came before. Uh, I think this therefore is pointing back to chapter 4 verse 1 And uh, the new paragraph is yet another explanation of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Certainly, if we're going to stop living in the sinful ways we used to live in before we uh, followed Jesus, certainly that would be one way uh, that we could uh, live in a manner worthy of our calling. But you could also trace this, therefore, back to the previous paragraph. Based on the fact that we've all been given gifts uh, to use for the common good in the church, based on the fact that we've all been included in the body of Christ, the church, we should no longer live like the Gentiles who don't know God. And that makes uh, th- that way of seeing this connecting, I think, makes a whole lot of sense as well. Uh, because you could reason it out this way, right? It's hard to speak truth in love to one another in such a way that we all grow up into Christ's likeness if our behaviors are dominated by sensuality, impurity, and greed, right? Building others up in Christ and sensuality, they don't go well together. Greed and the building up of the body of itself in love, it doesn't work well, right? So, same idea. I think that's uh, the therefore is connecting to what came before. In light of the fact that you've been given a high calling, in light of the fact that you've been given spiritual gifts by Christ and you're now a member of His body, uh, therefore, don't live like you lived before coming to Christ. We should obey this command because of our high calling and the mission that our gifting now gives us in life. We should also obey this command because it comes to us from an apostle. Uh, you'll remember that Paul was chosen by Christ to be the apostle to us Gentiles, uh, and he comes to us with Christ's authority. So, when Paul speaks, he speaks as an authoritative representative of Christ, and that leads to yet another explanation of why the uh, command is to be obeyed, because here he doesn't just uh, say this command to us, he affirms this together with the Lord. Uh, What Paul's communicating is that the ultimate source of authority behind this command is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we believe that theologically about the other commands, but he highlights it here. I actually think this is Paul's way when he says, I affirm this together with the Lord. I think it's Paul's way of uh, letting us know, look, if the Lord Jesus Christ visited Fredericksburg in 2024, one of the things he would be telling the Christians is, don't live like you lived before you started following me. That would be part of his message to us here in Fredericksburg. Now if you look at this command again, there is something a little odd about it. There's actually something a little ironic that if you've, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you probably just read right past it because you, you already understand what it means. Uh, but it is worth stopping and just acknowledging. Paul says, Therefore, this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. Well, that's ironic because Paul is writing to a predominantly Gentile church, telling them, Hey, quit acting like Gentiles. Well, you, and you guys understand this if you've been around the church for any length of time. Paul isn't using the word Gentile in its ethnic sense here. He's using it in its spiritual sense. And if you want to understand that, probably the best place you can go in Paul's letters is 1 Thessalonians 4.3 and following, where Paul says this, "'For this is the will of God, your sanctification.'" that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So, so when Paul uses the word Gentile in its spiritual sense, he's pointing to people who don't know God. They don't know the true and living God. Um, And there was a time when you and I were like that, Uh, There was a time when we ignored God to live life our own way uh, because of our sin. But now you and I have been reconciled to God through Christ. We've been given new spiritual life. And so we shouldn't go back to living the way we did before we knew God. And Paul goes on to explain then a number of characteristics that mark those who don't know God, uh, a number of characteristics that we want to turn away from and distance ourselves from. The first characteristic, is having a futile worldview, having a worthless worldview. Again, Paul says, "'This I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind.'" The Greek word that we translate, mind, is a complex word. It can be used to speak of the thinking process. I don't think that's what Paul is pointing to here, because in the next verse, he's going to deal with the thinking process when he talks about having a darkened understanding. So, how should we understand this word, mind? Well, I think the commentator best sums it up best when he writes… The apostle is referring not to a defect in the ability of the Gentiles to reason with their uh, minds, but to their mindset, to their total person viewed under the aspect of thinking. In other words, when Paul uses the word mind, he's using it in the sense of one's mental attitude and predisposition to the truth. Martin Lloyd-Jones defines it this way… The Gentiles' entire outlook upon life, their whole reaction to it and their way of living their lives is what Paul has in mind with this word, mind. And the way Lloyd-Jones interprets it points to a person's philosophy of life or their worldview. James Sire defines a worldview this way, a worldview is a, a set of assumptions which we hold consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently about the makeup of our world. Every person interprets the world through a worldview. That worldview may be theistic like Christianity or Islam or Hinduism. It may be atheistic like secular humanism or postmodernism or Marxism, but everybody has a worldview. And a worldview answers questions like where did we come from? Uh, What does it mean to be human? Why is there evil in the world, and how can we overcome it? What happens to us after we die? And what will the future be like for humanity? All the worldviews answer those kinds of questions and more. And Paul is teaching here that all the worldviews other than Christianity are futile. They, They lead to futile ways of doing life. They either end in meaninglessness and despair or they, they teach a meaning of life, but they miss the true meaning of life. In Romans chapter 1, Paul describes how those who do not know God arrive at these futile worldviews that are really just substitute realities. Uh, he explains it this way in Romans 1, verses 18 and following, "'For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven.'" "...against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks." But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Those words by the Apostle Paul are the greatest indictment on Gentile humanity, uh, that even though we know the truth, we suppress it. That even though we know the true God, we turn away from worshiping the true God to worship created things. And then, after doing all of that, what do we do next? We profess to be wise. Uh, the word that Paul uses for wise there is sophist, and we get English words like wise and wisdom from it, but we also get our English words sophisticated and philosophical from it. The habit of those who don't know God is to suppress the truth about God, not glorify Him, not give Him thanks, and then turn around and claim they're being sophisticated and philosophical and wise. That's what mankind was doing when Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and guess what? Mankind's still doing that today. Paul's uh, whole indictment on Gentile humanity, it's still true in 2024. This is what people are doing in London and in Paris and in New York and in the universities and in Hollywood and in the media and in Fredericksburg. This is what humanity does. They reject the truth about God that can be known for empty speculations, futile philosophies, and worthless worldviews. Take, for example, I don't have time to go through all of them, but let me just take three worldviews, just for example. Uh, take the atheistic worldviews, secular humanism, Marxism, and postmodernism. Uh, they are atheistic, and all of them are materialistic. In other words, they say there is no God, and the physical cosmos is all there is. There is no supernatural uh, not only is there not God, uh, people don't have souls. At least they don't have souls in the way religion attributes a soul to them. Uh, there is no God. There's no heaven or hell. There's no afterlife. There's no final judgment. Uh, that's that's what materialism teaches. But if that's true, let's let's think through this. Let's arrive at some conclusions. What if that's true? Well, on the one hand, if there is no God to answer to, and if there is no day of future accountability, that's what I like to call the day of judgment, the day of accountability. If there is no day of future accountability, if there is no God, then on the one hand, we can live life however we want to, and and that feels convenient. But what is the end of it all? If you you play the long game, if you're a future-oriented person at all, what is the ending in atheism? Well, eventually… I will grow old and die, and everyone I love will grow old and die, and every institution I love, given enough time, will become a ruin, and every cause I believe in eventually will be a wreck of time. That's what happens in atheism. Death wins, and it leads, for any sensitive thinker, for anybody who thinks about the future, it leads to despair and hopelessness. And it's also intellectually uncomfortable because you have to live with nagging inconsistencies about the creation and morals and progress. Let me explain. Um, Let's talk first about creation. Um, The design of the cosmos makes it clear that there must have been some super intelligent, super powerful designer and creator of all things, but you have to look out at that grand design and just deny that and say there is no God, and maybe the tack you take is that matter has always existed. But that's uh, th- that's an intellectually uncomfortable position. And in terms of morals in atheism, you have to believe in where did we come from? Well, you have to believe in evolution. So let's talk then about morals. Um, in the end, we are nothing more than clever chimps who are the product of a brutal evolutionary process but kindness is everything, we should be loving, and we should treat everybody as equal. That doesn't follow. That If evolution is true, what we should do is sacrifice the weak to perpetuate the strong, and we should probably have as many babies as we can to perpetuate our species, but that's what follows if evolution is true. You can't get to kindness and love and treating everybody as equal uh, just from evolution. It doesn't, it doesn't work. And so, you have this nagging problem with morals not having a good foundation. And then in terms of progress, this is what atheism says. We are on a rock hurling through the cosmos at tremendous speed, orbiting a star that will eventually go out, but trust us, there will be a happy ending. There will be progress, there will be a utopia, this all has a happy ending. It doesn't add up. None of these conclusions add up. They're all ripped off from Christianity. Christianity is the true foundation for loving other people as made in God's image. Uh, Christianity is the foundation for uh, treating kindness as important and treating other people as equal and, and as having dignity and value as made in God's image regardless of how much utilitarian value they bring to society. Uh, Christianity is, uh, is where the idea of the strong voluntarily sacrificing for the weak comes from because our Lord Jesus Christ, the strong one, sacrificed Himself for those of us who are weak. The great characteristic of all the non Christian worldviews is that they are futile. Uh, They lead logically to despair, as in atheism, or they lead to false hopes, as in false religions. And we used to live with those futile mindsets. Now, we may not have claimed before we came to Christ, we may not have been a consistent adherent to one of those worldviews. We, may, we might have claimed to be agnostic. We might have claimed uh, to be irreligious and to not really have a worldview. But the bottom line is, even if we did that, we still latched on to applications for living and ways of thinking about life that were the applications of those greater worldviews, even if we didn't understand the connection. Uh, What were some of those applications that as Westerners we lived with before coming to Christ? Well, we lived with things like this. Mankind is basically good. Be yourself, follow your heart, live for your own happiness. Those are the kinds of conclusions and applications to the worldviews that we lived out before coming to Christ, but those were futile mindsets, Uh, and they may be comfortable to us. They may be familiar because we lived in them before. They may be popular with everyone around us, but we need to no longer live with those futile mindsets. If we're going to live in a manner worthy of our calling, we need to free our minds from futile worldviews and their conclusions. And we also have to free our minds from living with darkened understandings about the way life works. Consider verse 18. I'll reread it starting in 17 so we get the flow of Paul's thought. This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as those who don't know God also walked in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. The key words in this verse are darkened and understanding. So, let's start with with understanding. The understanding refers to the intellect. Uh, it also refers to the inner disposition of a person's mind and to the result of the thinking process. Uh, it, it, it can refer to um, the conclusions we come to when we think out a matter for ourselves. And Paul sees, uh, I think Paul has all three of those meanings in mind, and Paul sees a great problem with them here. And this is the problem. He sees that our intellects and our inner disposition towards truth and the connections we come to when we think things through for ourselves, uh, he sees that we come to the wrong conclusions, and he describes the problem with all those ways of thinking as darkened. And the idea of the word darkened in Greek is not like… like a dimmer switch, right, where you can have mood lighting and that our our minds are somewhat darkened uh, by these things. No, no. The idea in Greek is total darkness that's caused by an absence of light, in this case, by the absence of the light of God's truth. Uh, This is… having a darkened understanding is actually one of 12 ways in his letters that Paul describes the mind's of those who have not been born again. Listen to the other 11 words Paul uses to describe our minds before we came to Christ. Debased, hardened, blinded, futile, hostile, deluded, deceived, sensuous, depraved, corrupted, defiled. Now, I would remind you that Paul wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that his description of the mind of unregenerate man is what God says our minds were like before we came to Christ. And if you read the rest of the New Testament, our minds are still tainted by these things even after we come to Christ. But I want to give you an alternate, uh, an alternate uh, position on this issue of what is in the mind of man. Listen to this account Uh, there's a man who's a great thinker, who's greatly influenced the spirit of the age we live in. He's come to a different conclusion about our minds, and I found a quote by him where he's talking about himself, but if you read the rest of his book, it's a book he titled Confessions, if you read the rest of his book, uh, he applies what he says to himself here to all of humanity. This This is what he said, "'If I had remained free, obscure, and alone,' Placed in the situation nature designed for me, I would have done nothing but what was right, for my heart bears not the seeds of any mischievous passion. Translation, my mindset isn't futile, my understanding isn't darkened, my heart is free from sin and the seeds of sin. The man who wrote those words is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and he applied them not only to himself but to the minds of all people. Uh, who who live naturally, at least before they're… He applied them to the minds and hearts of all people as they're born naturally before they're corrupted by the outside influences of society. And my question for you is this, whose account of the human heart and whose account of your own heart are you going to believe in? Are you going to believe in what the Apostle Paul says here or what Rousseau says? See, Rousseau's account of the human heart is very popular. Uh, It's convenient because we don't have to reckon with the evil that rises up from within. Um, It's popular in that it's the assumed part of many narratives of movies. Uh, It's a part of numerous educational programs. It's the assumption behind them. Um, And it's also behind the entire sexual revolution. But which account will you believe? I would submit to you that God knows you better than you know yourself. If God, through His Son uh, and also through His Son's messengers, tells you that you have a darkened understanding before you came to Him, then I think you had a darkened understanding. And He even tells us why our hearts were darkened. They were darkened because we were excluded from the life of God, ultimately because of the hardness of our hearts. He does mention ignorance But if you read the New Testament, it's a willful ignorance that's caused by hardness of heart. And uh, I'll tell you where I stand on this question. I've taken a deep look into my own soul. I've had opportunities for solitude and reflection, I've taken a deep look within my own soul, and I believe God's description of my heart, not Rousseau's. Now, I understand why Rousseau's description is tempting to believe, it's a pleasant fiction, but I believe the biblical account describes me more accurately. Or, or perhaps here's another way to illustrate the tension between what, are, what many voices in our culture are saying and what the Bible says about the human heart and soul and mind. In 2013, there was a critically acclaimed novel, The Goldfinch, that was published. Now, the, the Goldfinch is a quintessentially romantic novel. Rousseau would have loved it. It's full of childhood innocence and unrequited love and introspection and solitude. It truly is a romantic novel. Uh, and yet, in the midst of this introspective uh, novel, the main character says something that I just think is so amazing. Uh, and I'm going to quote it because it has everything to do with this question of what you and I need to be saved from, and whether or not we have naturally darkened understandings of life. This is what the character says in the middle of this novel, not written by a Christian author, that is very romantic and that I I think, overall, Rousseau would have loved. The main character says this, quote, "'From William Blake to Lady Gaga, from Rousseau to Rumi to Tosca to Mr. Rogers,' It's a curiously uniform message, accepted from high to low. When in doubt, what to do? How do we know what's right for us? Every shrink, every career counselor, every Disney princess knows the answer. Be yourself. Follow your heart. Only here's what I really, really want someone to explain to me. What if one happens to be possessed of a heart that can't be trusted? What if the heart, for its own unfathomable reasons leads one willfully and in a cloud of unspeakable radiance away from health, domesticity, civic responsibility, strong social connections, and all the blandly held common virtues, and instead straight towards a beautiful flare of ruin, self-immolation, and disaster. If your deepest self is singing and coaxing you straight towards the bonfire, is it better to turn away? End quote. The person asking those questions is a fictional character in a novel, but in 2024 in the West, anybody who can ask those kinds of questions isn't far from the kingdom of heaven. The fact is, our deepest selves are singing to us and coaxing us into a rebellion from God that ends in fires that can't be quenched. Brothers and sisters, God knows you better than you know yourself. His diagnosis of your mind and heart and soul is more accurate than your own self-diagnosis. And His diagnosis is that before you were reconciled to Him… Uh, you had a darkened understanding of life. And the rest of the New Testament warns us that just because we've now been included in the life of God through Christ, our minds and hearts are still tainted by those futile mindsets and darkened understandings of how life works. And we're still tempted by our own inclinations and by the influence of the culture and the world around us to go back to living in those ways, which is why the Holy Spirit through the Apostle warns us here to continue to free our minds from the influence of these worldviews and these godless philosophies. Don't be yourself. Being yourself is what alienated you from God in the first place. Being yourself is what got you into this mess. To the extent you're able, be like Christ. Imitate Him. Do what Jesus would do. I'll confess it freely from the pulpit. Less of Chris and more of Christ would be better for everybody. Don't be yourself. Be like Christ. Imitate Him. Don't follow your heart. The prophet Jeremiah teaches us that the human heart is more deceitful uh, than all else and desperately wicked. Your heart lies to you. It's deceitful. Don't trust it. Trust an objective source of truth outside of you that God has given to guide you. Let this be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path and not your own heart and your own desires which are deceptive. Don't be true to yourself. Be true to the one who created you, loves you, and redeemed you. He's the one in whom you live and move and have your being and who you have to answer to. He knows what's best for you. Trust Him. Be true to Him. Free your mind from these futile mindsets and godless conclusions about the path that seems wisest. Stop walking like those who don't know God in the futility of their minds and in the emptiness of their worldviews. Instead of futility of mind, put on the mind of Christ. He Himself said it this way, I am the light of the world. He who follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray.